This is Fielding Logan at Q Prime, and you're listening to Promoter 101. Oh, glorious days. It's back to Promoter 101 quarantine sessions. It is my great honor to welcome back W. Luke Pierce. What an introduction from Yakov Smirnoff's fresh in from Branson. We're so glad to have that liner here. Thanks for coming on the show. Glorious day in Promoter 101 land indeed. Thank you, Dan. Good to be back here. And I am excited today because we're coming back with the goods. And Dan, I am excited because the reason we are back today is you've got a phenomenal conversation with Golden Voices Elliot Lefko on the podcast today. This guy has had a dizzying career from Toronto to Los Angeles, working with some of the biggest names. And Dan, as I'm sure everyone's going to find out, Elliot is a phenomenal storyteller and has seen a lot. We're going to be talking about Henry Rollins, Leonard Cohen, some amazing bands that Elliot has worked with. He's just got a mind unlike anyone else, and he's going to tell a bunch of stories today. I'm looking forward to it. Not only that, we've got a war story from one of the icons in our business. Jimmy Coplix here, and he tells it, baby. All right. Promoter 101, episode 217 starts right now. This is Emma Banks. I work at Creative Artists Agency, and this is Promoter 101. Hey, if you got anything on your mind, you want to talk to us during this amazing quarantine time, we've got nothing but time to read your emails and catch up with you. We're lonely. We miss you. It's been a long time. Reach out to us. We could use your virtual hug. At Steiny at Promoter101.net. Tell us what's on your mind. Tell us you miss us. Tell us, tell us what's going on. Dan, I don't know if you know this or not, but they're actually telling us online. There's a website, uh, twitter.com. People are on it. They are telling us what they think all the time, uh, whether we want it or not, quite frankly. But they are out there, and we are in the conversation. We're in the mix. You can hit Dan at the Jew on Twitter. The show's Promoter 101, and I'm at W. Luke Pierce. Check us out on Instagram. We are all over the internet. Come join the conversation. And as always, we're on the World Wide Web at Promoter101.com. Plus, now find us on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, motherfuckers. I believe that was the original name was LinkedIn motherfuckers. But just like the Facebook, they cut it. Reed Hoffman was like, this is how we're going to sell business, baby. We're just going to drop the F-bomb inside of our logo. There you go. I'm Harvey Cohen with Live Nation Canada, and I'm here on Promoter 101. Have you missed any of our past Promoter 101 episodes? Well, you're in luck. We've saved them all for you on the World Wide Web in that virtual cloud at Promoter101.net. This week, we feature episode 192 with the amazing Jody Goodman of Live Nation Northern California. Dan, there is not a bad episode in the bunch. Go check them all out, promoter101.net. And when you do, let us know how good they were. Drop us a review on iTunes. It really helps the podcast. There was one bad one. There were several bad ones, actually, but we're not going to tell you what they were. So you just got to go find out for yourself. Good luck. Hey, this is Bill Silva from Bill Silva Entertainment. You are listening to Promoter 101. of the week. 
Luke, there's some stuff going on, even though there's not much going on. But Mark Geiger did an amazing interview this week on the Bob Lefsitz podcast, both friends of our podcast. Mark really broke into how long this could go and talking about the next six months is certainly going to be worse than the first handful of months. And the six months behind that could be even worse, depending on how long it takes for a vaccine to roll out. The reality that Mark laid out there was a strong drink for the industry. How real do you think that is, that we may not be back until 2022 on any real touring level of indoor shows? I actually have not heard this interview yet as of the time that we were listening to this. I've read all about it. I've got the highlights and the cliff notes, and I am going to listen to it after we record this podcast this evening. And that all being said, I think Mark's assessment is half right. I think that in 2021, based on the path of therapeutics, vaccines, and also just the kind of X factor of a certain percentage of the U.S. population not giving a fuck about the concerns of a gathering, that we will see some shows. Now, there'll be fractional volumes of what they were in 2019. And we've got to remember, I think we've said this on this podcast several times now, 2017, 2018, 2019 were some of the biggest years in the history of the world for the concerts and touring business. Gigantic grosses, huge ticket sales, unlike anything we'd ever experienced. So you couple that with you know the, the devastating effects of what's going on in the global pandemic and the corresponding economic recession that we're going to see as a result of this as well too. And those volumes just have to come down anyways. But I think they you know in 2021 we're going to see something that is fractionally reduced throughout the year. Less than full capacities in clubs and in theaters are going to be very difficult to produce shows and arenas safely and. In a lot of cases, I think outdoor shows will be the winners. So summer 2021, hopefully a small, brighter shade of light than what we're going to see for most of the year. But I think Mark is right, and very much so, that 2022 will probably mark the kind of upswing in the concert business back towards the levels that we were. By no means will we be back at 2019 or 2018 levels in 2022. It'll probably be like most economists are predicting, a very swoosh, like the Nike swoosh shaped curve of recovery that will see us recovering, you know, over a multi-year period, 2022, 2023, maybe even first or second quarter of 2024. Very hard to predict, but that to me, Dan, seems reasonable. I was fortunate enough to listen to uh, an epidemiologist, Mark Dennison, and he said, said that there are essentially two outcomes in the United States at this point based on where our policies act, regardless of what happens in November uh, in an election and a change of administration, which is pretty much everybody will get coronavirus and a certain percentage of people will die. It'll be a large percentage of our population having tested positive for the antigen and a lot of people from that suffering through it. Or there will be you know, a large case where most of those people are, are vaccinated. And his, his bet based on the, the timeline for vaccines and what he's seen is, is the former. And so I think we're going to see this type of transmission continue at an unfiltered rate for the next you know six to nine months before hopefully a vaccine falls from the sky or we get a new president. And at which case we'll start to see some reversals of some of these things, which takes us right into a 2022 timeline that Mark Geiger talked about in the Bob Lefsitz podcast. I think everybody should check out that episode of Lefsitz podcast. I think the themes that I'm starting to explore in 2020 is a lot along the lines of how this is impacting the recorded business, because I think for as rosy colored glasses as people have had about the record side of our business not being that uh, affected by it, I think that we're going to see subscriptions to services like Spotify. 
Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, possibly churn later in the year, especially at the end of July when many households are getting the extra 600 bucks a week right now under the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Act. When that money goes away, I think we're gonna see a lot of people make a lot of different household decisions in terms of the way that they're treating things right now. And I think that one of the first things to go will be subscriptions like that. And that means uh, a retraction in the global records business, which everybody was lauding in the first and second quarter as being this last bastion of, of hope for artists and the creative community and, and music. And I think we're going to have to really explore what those types of headwinds mean because uh, the double whammy of hits to live for, you know, Legacy 360 deals and live performance income coupled with a possible drop of subscription revenues, which pays out into sound recording revenues is going to have a, a, a rippling effect again. So talk about the second wave of Corona. Let's talk about the second wave of recessive impacts to artists that's going to be happening later in this year. And it's going to be driven largely by what we're, we're talking about today, which is the churn of subscriptions globally. Hi there. My name is Gary Spivak. I am the executive VP, head of talent at Danny Wimmer Presents DWP, and you are listening to Promoter 101. Up first on Promoter 101, episode 217, we are joined by Live Nation's Jimmy Coplick. This guy is an absolute legend, works with some of the biggest names from the Stones to Springsteen and so many more in the Northeast. This is going to be a great war story as he sits down with Dan. Live Nation's own Jimmy Coplick right here on Promoter 101. Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. Finally. I have finally made it. After 52 years, I have finally made it. Thank you. Well, I think you made it a long time ago, but uh, long overdue, sir. Can you give us a couple stories? I mean, an amazing long history in the business. You've seen some stuff. Yeah. As you know, Dan, it's a crazy business. Every time you think you're doing something right, somebody tells you you did it wrong. I was in charge of OzFest for a few years for Live Nation because of my relationship with Sharon Osbourne, which has always been a good one. I've always admired her and gotten along really well with her with the help of Marsha Vlasic, who is really one of her closest friends. OzFest comes to Hartford, to the amphitheater in Hartford. The, or the lawn people start throwing dirt all over the place and pulling up all the sod and throwing it out. And I've always had a very public presence uh, in Connecticut. So I run out there and I get on the microphone. I go, listen, everybody, I am in charge of OzFest for Live Nation. I promise you, if you keep throwing this sod, I will never bring OzFest back to Hartford. And everybody stopped throwing the sod at that moment. So I said, this is pretty cool. I walked backstage and I said to Sharon, Sharon, I said, I... Um, everything is fine. We can go to the next act. It wasn't time for Ozzy yet because Judas Priest was going to be on next. I said, time for Judas Priest to go on. And she goes, well, what's happening with the sod throwing? So oh, no, that's fine. I went out there and I calmed everybody down and there's no more sod throwing. Everything is cool. You went out there? I said, yeah, I went out there. I stopped, I stopped the riot. She goes, it's not your fucking stage. You shouldn't go out there. I said, Sharon, I stopped the riot. She goes, I don't fucking care. You come and get me, and I decide how to stop the fucking riot. Not you. And the rest of the night, she didn't talk to me. So when you think you do things right, sometimes you do them right, but they're not looked at as being done right. Which taught me a lesson. Always go to the actors. The business, this business is really run by the artists. Well, it's one story. Another one, I did the last play at Shea with Billy Joel, the final two shows um, at Shea Stadium in 2008. And Dennis was kind enough to ask me to be involved. I was running Live Nation New York at the time. And I've done Billy Joel since club days. So I've, my first date with Billy Joel, he opened up for the Beach Boys. This isn't the real story. And it was in Miami Beach as the Beach Boys gave me a gift since I helped bring them back. They said, what market would you like? And I go, well, the Jew and living in New York. We always went to Miami Beach Easter time. So I'd like to show Easter weekend in Miami Beach. And uh, Beach Boys say, fine, no problem. This was back in 1972 when there were really no loyalties back then. 
And they put Billy Joel on as the opener. And I forgot to put stage steps up to the stage. And Billy does his set. And he went down very well. And he walks off and falls right on his face. And he looks at I happen to be standing right there. And he looks at me and goes, who the fuck's the promoter? And I go, I don't know. I think he's over there. And I walked away, and that was my first meeting with Billy Joel that I have since laughed about with him. He doesn't remember falling off the stage, thank goodness. But I'm doing the show, and we had Garth Brooks, Tony Bennett, John Mayer, Steven Tyler, Don Henley. It was really an all-star sh- two nights with Billy Joel. But this, the best secret, the secret, we announced all those artists to some degree, but the secret we kept was that Paul McCartney was going to come the first night. And they, because he was the first show at Chase Stadium with the Beatles back in 1964. So he gets on the plane to head over from London and Billy's on stage. And we're waiting for Paul to land at JFK. It looks like he's not going to make it in time. So Billy keeps signaling over to Dennis and to myself, where's Paul? What's going on with Paul? Because Billy wanted to put a Beatles song in the set because of the fact that he was playing Chase Stadium. He was the last play and the Beatles were the first play. Finally, Dennis and I looked at each other and realized, you know, we don't know Billy. It looks like Paul's not going to make it. So we told Billy, probably not going to happen. So Billy throws A Hard Day's Night into the set. About five minutes after he plays Hard Day's Night, we we had an 11 o'clock curfew. I got a a call on the radio that Paul just landed at 20 minutes to 11. I look at Dennis and I uh, go, oh boy, this is not going to be easy. Billy gets off after his first encore. And I go, I don't think he's going to make it to the show. And as Billy's about to walk on, Paul McCartney's cars come in with the sirens and the lights flashing, everything like that. And I'm a New Yorker. I know that to get from Kennedy to Shea Stadium, certainly on a weeknight, it's going to take at least 45 minutes to an hour. And you have to go through custom because he was coming from London. Paul gets gets up on stage. Billy's excited as hell. And I go over to Dennis. I go, okay. So I've been giving Billy all this wrong information. I feel terrible about it. I said, but how did he do it? And Dennis reminds me that his name is Sir Paul McCartney. Therefore, he doesn't have to go through any customs. The police car met him right on the tarmac. He didn't have to go through any security. And they put him right in the car. And they took him right down the Long Island Expressway and brought him right into Shea Stadium. We made it in 15 minutes from when the plane landed to Shea Stadium. Again, okay, you think you're doing things right? Hey, Billy, I think I'm covering your butt here. He's not going to be there. And who shows up? But Paul McCartney on time to do the two shows. What song did they play? They did. I saw her standing there, and then they came back and did Let It Be. Thank God Billy Joel knew more than one Beatles song. Billy Joel's set list usually might include one, but his sound checks are a lot of Beatles songs. His sound checks are some of the best there is, because he does plays a lot of Beatles songs in his sound checks. You got one more for us? Well, Watkins Glen really was a great night. It was 600,000 people, great day, July 28, 1973. So it's right around the corner, actually. Shelley Finkel and myself had the Allman Brothers make a surprise visit to a Grateful Dead show the year before, and it clicked that maybe we should put them together on a show. We were going to put Leon Russell on as the third artist. And Jerry Garcia did not like that and said, the dead aren't playing unless it's the band. Well, the band really hadn't played in a long time. So we had to go to Albert Gross and we had to go find who handles the band. We got the band to agree to play. And there were a million things that went on that night. But the thing that I most remember is when the dead were about to take the stage, Sam Cutler, their current manager, said, we're not taking the stage unless you give us a $25,000 bonus. Now, we had collected enough money at the box office, so we had the $25,000 there. We said, okay, Sam, we'll give you the twenty-five grand bonus. Do me a favor. Don't tell the Allman Brothers, because if they find out, they're going to want the twenty-five grand too, because you're supposed to get the same amount of money. Sam says, no problem. Just give me the twenty-five grand. I want it in cash. We give them $25,000 in cash. The, the, the dead are on stage, and all of a sudden, Johnny Podell and Phil Walden walk up to me, and they go, we understand you gave twenty-five grand to the dead. 
I go, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. I played stupid. So Sam Cutler comes over and says, yeah, I told him. I said, Sam, that was supposed to be confidential. He says, well, I think I'm going to do a lot more business with the Allman Brothers. I'm going to be with you. So I was honest with the Allman Brothers. So then the Allman Brothers held me up. You need 25 grand. I didn't have 25 grand cash. And we're in the middle of a festival site in upstate New York. So I had my guy that handles tickets get in a helicopter, fly down to Connecticut, for the next three hours, he collected money from ticket outlets because there was no ticket master back then or ticket drum. And he came back and he dumps $25,000 worth of cash in 20s. And the Almonds got on late because they were counting every single dollar. And we were $250 short. And Phil Walden hardballed me. And I said, Phil, I, am, I will owe you $250 or I'm going to have to get up there and tell 600,000 people, you guys aren't playing. Of course, he went on, played. I paid him the 250 paid him way more than the days. So that was another thing. An interesting story we had, one other one, which is an Eagle show. It was the largest concert we ever did in Connecticut, 70,000 people at the elbow. Joe Walsh was in the band, and he got a little too drunk or whatever that day. And when it was time for the Eagles to get on stage, we tried to wake Joe up. We couldn't wake Joe up. My head of security at that time was a fellow that was in the Green Berets. And he said, oh, we always had a great way to wake people up because we used to get really fucked up when we were in Vietnam. I said, well, how's that? He goes, you get a big bucket of ice and you take the guy's pants and underpants off and you sit them in that bucket of ice. And when the balls hit that bucket of ice, watch him wake up. I said, well, I can't do that to Joe Walsh. He goes, I'll do it. They take off Joe Walsh's pants. They sit him down into the bucket of ice. And he woke up instantly, went on stage, hot weather, it was an 80, 85 degree day that day, and played his butt off. So if you ever around anybody that's too fucked up, just get a bucket of ice. It works every single time. I love it. You got one more for us? Yeah. When, I, when John Scher and I first became partners, we had the same night, the, the Grateful Dead out in Meadowlands at the stadium, a giant stadium. And I had, and we had Guns N' Roses at Nassau Coliseum. So John, who has a much closer relationship with the dead, handled the dead. And I went out to Nassau Coliseum to handle Guns N' Roses. And obviously, as used to be, but not recently, Axel was late. And the crowd is getting crazy in the Coliseum. And I get a call from Doug Goldstein, who's the manager, that Axel is going to be getting in a car, going out. He'll be leaving now. I said, it's the Long Island Express. He won't be out here till 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. I said, I'll send a helicopter. So I call up this company called Island Helicopters. I get the helicopter to go to the east side. Axel goes, gets on. There was, this was before cell phones. Axel gets on uh, the plane with his 300-pound bodyguard. And I get a call from the heliport saying, the helicopter will not take off because there's too much weight in the helicopter. So I said, can I speak to the security guard? So the security guard gets off the plane, and I explained to him what happened. I said, you can't get back on the plane. He says, if I don't get back on the plane, Axel will fire me. I said, well, we'll make it look like it's our fault. Get on the plane. I'll call you. You get back off the plane. We'll tell the helicopter pilot, take off without you, and I'll have a helicopter take you out right afterwards. And the guy said, no problem. So Axel is on the plane. He gets back on the plane. He says to Axel, oh, there's a phone call. I got to get off. Axel takes off, gets the National Coliseum. Everything is great. He comes in and he goes again, where the fuck's the promoter? I happen to be standing there waiting for him. I didn't know Axel. I knew Doug Goldstein. I said, I don't know where the promoter is. I think the promoter actually is at, at the Meadowlands, a giant stadium. So Axel gets into his dressing room and refuses to come out. Doug Goldstein gets out to the show. And I said to Doug, Doug what are we going to do here? He goes, you have to fall on the sword. You have to say you were the promoter. He said, if Axel starts beating you up, 
I'm a black belt. I could stop it. I don't want to beat up my lead singer. But if he beats you up, you might have to take a few shots. So, okay, fine. So I walk in there and I'm a little wimpy Jew and I don't want to get beaten up. I've never been beaten up and I've never beaten anybody up. And I go to Axel and I go, Axel, I'm sorry. This is my, my fault. I, I feel terrible about it. But there was no way the helicopter could take off uh, with all that weight on it. And he looks at me and goes, okay, so I wanted to know. And he gets up. <laughs> yeah. And he walks out on stage and does two hours. So again, you know, no, it's, as you know, it's a business of who the fuck knows? Well, you're one of the first promoters to ever sell and wind up working for Clear Channel that became Live Nation. I was number two. M Mitch and Ron were number one, and I was number two, and then Dave Lucas and Steve Sabis were, were number three, but I was number two. So you're one of the longest-running employees at Live Nation. Actually, at this moment, you may be the longest-running. <laughs> yes, 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 you're right. I know what you're saying, and I agree. I think I probably am the longest-running employee. So how did that happen? How did you get picked up so early? It was called SFX Broadcasting at the time. They wanted to buy concert businesses that were based where they had a cluster of radio stations. SFX Broadcasting had seven stations in Connecticut. So they came to me to buy Metropolitan. John Sher did not want to sell Metropolitan. So I, Shelley and I, with the Nederlanders, owned the amphitheater. Metropolitan had a booking contract. So I said, I can offer you the amphitheater in Connecticut, the Meadows. And if I offer you the amphitheater, would that settle things? And they were very happy with that because they knew that I would get all the indoor shows anyway. So they felt buying the amphitheater, they actually got a bargain. They didn't have to buy Metropolitan. They, they bought me and Shelly. Metropolitan. And they never actually wound up buying Metropolitan, right? No, actually, Mitch Slater bought Metropolitan. John Sher turned down $50 million as the owner of Metropolitan. And then Mitch Slater ended up buying it for $2 million. And then when, when he left SFX, when it became Clear Channel, Mitch left. And Irv Zuckerman became the head of the concert business. Mitch and Silliman were starting other things. In the meantime, Mitch bought the $2 million, Metropolitan, and then sold it to Live Nation. Well, it was Clear Channel later, actually, for $8 million in less than a year, which shows you how smart Mitch Slater was. Absolutely. The great Jimmy Klaplick right here on Promoter 101. I can't thank you enough for taking time and telling us your story today. My pleasure, Dan. I hope to see you soon. Wouldn't you know, that be great? One yeah, big room, all, all of us together. That I can't wait. Just like the old days with the promoters. Remember those pictures? Uh, just just like February at Polestar. But hey, we yeah. wait, get through it. And one of these days, we'll be allowed to do shows together and allowed to be in the same room and get to drink together. I cannot wait. Same here. I can't wait either. Jimmy's just an icon of the Northeast. So thrilled. We finally had him right here on Promoter 101. Hi there, this is Jody Goodman from Live Nation, San Francisco, Northern California, and I am on Promoter 101 with Steiny in the house. Tweets of the week. Listen, folks, it's the name of the show, so we got to talk about it. We got tweets this week. If you're not following along at home, make sure you check out Dan on Twitter. He is at the Jew. Dan, you had a few things to say this week, and let's start here. Things are so slow right now, I actually saw an agent reply to a marketing email. Yeah, true story. He's one of your agents. Wow, that means times are really tough at agencies, folks. How about this one, Dan? Another Thursday during COVID. Let's keep moving shows, pushing on sales, and talking about guessing how much longer this will go on and how great it is that we have this time with our families. Same call every day, all day. We all have it. How long do you think it's going to go, Luke? Well, we talked about this already, Dan. 2022. Paying taxes today was the extra gut punch we've all been looking for. Yeah, this one hurt. Money just going out, going out, going out, and oh, here you go, government. Here you go. 
Last one up here, Dan. Maybe it's just me, but liking Coldplay is way harder to admit than liking Radiohead. Does seem like that, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just a personal thing. I actually like Coldplay way more than Radiohead, so what the fuck am I talking about? It's like admitting you like figure skinning. Hey, man, go see those fuckers in a stadium. They're pretty good. That'll do it for Tweets of the Week. Like I said, Dan, he's on Twitter, at the Jew. This is Brian Traeger from Live Nation, and this is Promoter 101. In our featured interview this week, we have less of a sit-down, more of an adventure with one of the most colorful personalities in the music business, Mr. Elliot Lefko. This man who works for Golden Voice in Los Angeles, but originally from Toronto, has worked with some of the biggest names and some of the biggest festivals all around the world. And he sits down today with Dan for an adventurous interview, talking about some of his many stories from his more than four decades of concert promotion. Your intensity when you find something you like and how much you get into it and truly attracted to it. It's not about the charts. It's about the art. Yeah, I mean, that's my favorite thing. And there's always room for that when I was first starting out doing like the little tiny bands. And you never know like when the little tiny band's going to be a big band. And you always have so much fun with it. But like even today, I phoned up this manager, an English manager. I was chasing down some little tiny band today. And it's just so much fun. The hunt of trying to go get that band is so much fun. Okay, so we're going to do a special game throughout the course of this interview. You've sent me a list of about 25 gigs that you have done throughout your career or been to. And I get to pick at random which ones I want you to tell the story. And we're just going to insert those along the way. You don't know which one is going to come. It's just going to be cool stories along the way. I tried to think of like some of my favorite gigs, either like I love the band, something crazy happened, something terrible happened. I could insert some stories about that and, and we can have some fun with it. So to give everybody an example, I'm going to ask you to tell one right now, just so people understand where we're coming from. And then we'll just randomly insert one. Are you ready for your first story? Yes. Stone Roses Toronto. Okay, so the Stone Roses came up with like one of the greatest records of all time. If the record wasn't called Second Coming, it was it was kind of like to, like uh, Jesus actually coming down and doing a gig. Everybody really wanted them to do a, a show. And then finally, there was this great agent, probably a friend of yours, Shelly Shaw at ICM when Andy was there and, and Greenbaum was there and uh, they had a little dynamic uh, office there. She said, okay, got the Stone Roses, but we need to find something crazy to put him into. So... I went and found this place had never been used before. It was on the waterfront of Toronto and it's where they put the shipping containers, but it was the only place that can hold like 5,000, 6,000 people, just a big room. I got the room, put it on sale and like, bam, the thing sold out in a second. Then I got one of the best calls of my life. It was from Bill Elson, one of the all-time greatest agents of all time, a man who came to work every day with like a suit and tie, very straight, but like Frank Barcelona, was associated with so many great bands over the years. And he would never call me. Oh, I was just some little guy. Called me up and just said, I just want to tell you that every so often, somebody does something really amazing and something really good for our bands, and they never get the thank you. So this is a thank you call. This is to say to you, you did a great job. We all really appreciate what you did. You took a chance. You sold out the show. And I want to say thank you. So that put me on cloud nine to get the respect of somebody like him. And then later on, get to the gig. And uh, the room was horrible, horrible sounding. The band could never live up to the hype that they had. And I remember they wanted me to get the last poets to open the show, the famous earliest rappers ever. I don't think I got them, but I got something kind of good. And I just remember those two guys like Ian, the, the singer and the guitar player fighting with each other, always fighting and coming off stage, hating each other. But it was just like the fact they got to do Stone Roses was incredible. Well, Stone Roses played MSG, I think, three years ago. Yeah. Sold out house. Amazing show, only U.S. date, and of course, I was right up front. So and did good. Did it translate? It translated well. They're amazing. The next year, they only played the U.K. Caught them at Wimley, caught them at Leeds, 
there's a band, they play, they jump on stage. I don't care where the show is. I'm going to be there. Now, yeah, and they're like Oasis. They're going to fight amongst themselves, but that's what makes it so good. They're so fucking passionate. The goddamn right. Stone Roses. And it's like they don't care. Their attitude is just to be so cool on stage. Like, you don't care. Like, you're in a pub somewhere. That The whole thing about not caring makes it so good. Love those guys. All right. So that's what it's like. We'll drop a story in randomly from this list as we do the interview. Let's jump into this a little bit. So your career is a storied one. As you started out booking clubs in the smallest of small and some of the coolest acts in the world, Toronto kid getting his chops in early on the baby bands. How'd that go? How'd that all come together originally? A friend of mine made this film about poets and uh, it's called Poetry in Motion. And he asked me to help him out. We did a show with like Jim Carroll and John Giorno, some of these New York poets. And after it was over, I thought, man, I can do this. So I started doing some gigs with like Jim Carroll, William Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg. And I was having so much fun bringing these great poets on stage and that whole New York grit. And then from there, it was like rock concerts. I want to get into rock concerts. So I started putting in shows at like little tiny places. So I, I would do like um, The Liars from Boston, one of the most incredible bands ever. I met some people like Bob Lawton, Frank Riley, Andy Summers. They all lived in this building in New York, 611 Broadway. And you'd go in there and it was like Wait, a real building. All three of those guys lived in the same building? They, they didn't live there, but they had their offices there. Okay. So, but you would be able to go into this building and walk around and it was like smoky glass doors. It was kind of like a detective novel. You'd go in there and Sonic Youth would be eating pizza. Johnny Thunders would be there and, and Andy. And you walk away and you'd just be able to like buy bands for like really cheap. So you could go get the Dead Milkman, Sonic Youth, Green on Red, Johnny Thunders, all these amazing bands. And then I'd bring them back to Toronto. I'd put them on. It cost me $1,000, $2,000. I'd make a little bit of money. I'd be able to go buy a burger the next day. I lived in an apartment building. There were no employees. It was just myself. There was one guy who helped me out doing a little bit of stage hands. And then when the show didn't make any money at the end of the night, I'd give him $50 for his work. And then he'd have to borrow $20 to go eat the next day. I love the way you talk about it. It's like if you were a cook and you were going down to the fish market, I got a dead milkman. <laughs> I came back and I brought it in and my customers loved that it was on the menu. It was fresh. It was amazing. Well, I always felt like if you're going to go, like if I go to New York or if I go to LA, I go see Geiger or I go see Pat Magnarella. The whole thing was like, come back with something in your pocket, pay for the trip, come back and pay for the $15 it took you to get there and come back. And it'd always be like that. And it'd always be more. I remember going to see Geiger and he gave me a couple of amazing bands. And like, I got Soundgarden. Pat Magnarella was an agent at the time. He used to work with Frank Riley. And then John Brannigan was a beginning agent, Don Muller, all these people. They just go and give me bands because they saw how passionate I was. They wanted somebody to go in and, and run with their bands. And uh, I did a good job for them and I made money and I just had so much fun doing it. All right. Well, you just mentioned Soundgarden. Maybe you can tell us about Soundgarden Nine Inch Nails at Molson Park. Well, Soundgarden, I got to do the first gig. I was just in love with all the Seattle bands. It was like Soundgarden, Mudhoney, Nirvana, The Fluid, Tad, all these bands that came in. I missed the wave of like... I think The Fluid was actually a Denver band. Denver, okay. So, but I, I missed all the bands like R.E.M. and that whole scene, IRS. But Seattle, that was my scene. 
And I remember getting to do all these bands and doing Soundgarden for the first time. And Chris Cornell with his long hair and, and Kim Thale, just best guitar player. They loved Ozzy, but they also loved melodic music. Same thing with like Nirvana, that combining the, the hard and the soft together. I got to do Soundgarden over the years. and I became friends with Susan Silver and Muller and all those people. And then Nine Inch Nails was managed by this guy called John Malm. He's from Cleveland and he had this thing called Nothing Records. And this guy, Tony Ciola, who used to work with Jay Marciano and I at MCA concerts, and Tony was like an amazing guy and eventually became manager of Marilyn Manson. And he worked for John Mom. And I remember one time Tony called me and the receptionist said, we have Tony from Nothing Records. And it was like, no, no, don't take that call from Nothing Records. And it turned out to be like big call, Nine Inch Nails. So anyways, um, he said to me, I got Nine Inch Nails coming in. If you want to do something amazing with them, go ahead. So then I went to Soundgarden and said like, Let's do something big. You're such a big band. I have this place, Molson Park in Toronto. It's in Barrie, an hour from Toronto. It holds like 25,000 people outdoors. Why don't we put the two bands together? And it was really, it was night and day. Soundgarden, they just, powerful band, but they just stand there. And then Nine Inch Nails are like this crazy band with all the lights and got to play in darkness and put the two together. And it was really that one plus one equals three. It turned out to be like an amazing show. Did 25,000 people, totally great. And then when the show was over, I was standing there with Kim from Soundgarden and he said to me, like, here's what I think of the show. And he took his lighter and he started lighting it. Like, that's what he thought of Nine Inch Nails. It's just like the magic of the lighter going on and off. But it was one of those nights. It was perfect. And I think Manson was like one of the opening acts. And it was just like, you could just tell that Manson was going to be amazing too. And it was just great. It was just, it was nice to have like some friends in the business who helped me out and made that show possible. All right. So let's jump back into where you were at. So you worked with all the early bands. You got that first crack in the market with bands like Nirvana, all of the hip bands coming through. Some of those bands became huge, epic bands. Some of them never got much further than the club. Nevertheless, you got to work with all of them. What brought you to that music? How did you find those groups in the early days? If for me, it's always been like a feeling. It's just something like that's in my heart and in my head. And I mean, I, I go to the new music seminar in the old days and run around all night or go down to Austin for South by Southwest and see all the bands. But it was just something like you get to know people. That's my whole philosophy in the music business is just get to know the right people. Just trust their judgment. Either it's a manager like John Silva, an agent like a Muller or Frank Riley or Bob Lawton or Stormy or one of those people, follow their lead, see what they got going. And then same thing with the record companies, just or like or people I know. So I'd hear about the bands, I'd follow it up. I, I if I heard something really good, I I'd be like a dog in a bone. I wouldn't let it go till I finally got the show. And then I would just like hammer away. And you know, I had a lot of competition when I was growing up in Toronto. Uh, you interviewed Arthur Fogel recently, and they had Arthur, Michael Cole. Brad Parsons, Riley O'Connor. And it was like me and trying to get uh, money for a burger the next day. But I, I held my own. I got to do Nirvana. I got to do all those bands. I got to do Pearl Jam. And uh, all in the early days, I got to do the Chili Peppers in the early days. But what happened was I'd fight with them and they eventually got to take the bands away from me because I was by myself. I remember a funny story with uh, PJ Harvey. Uh, Marty Diamond worked for a company that was actually owned by CPI. I think it was called ITG... Uh, Michael Farrell. I went to see Marty and he says, okay, you got to do PJ Harvey. And this was like PJ Harvey when she first started out wearing like combat boots and screaming. She was, she was the best. And I got to do the show. And, and then they were, CPI would call up Marty, go, why are you giving me to this guy? And we own your company and I'd still get the bands. So I think like the, the, the scrapper in me, the bulldog 
the the dreamer who got to really believe in all the bands, I got rewarded for it, at least at the beginning. And then later on, it was always like, you know, even with like Nirvana, I, I went down to uh, the place where Coachella is in India to go see Pearl Jam when they played that first gig in the desert with a friend of mine who was friends with Pearl Jam, because I knew that like, that's where it was going to be going next. So I had Nirvana at Maple Leaf Gardens, but I already had to like give up all the, all the show to CPI. I only got a little piece of it. So, but I was on to the next thing. I was running on to Pearl Jam. I went down to India. I saw them. I tried to get in there. I saw what was going on. I just, I followed the lead of, of where things were going. So let's jump into the list for a second and go back to another show. Can we get another show story? Right. I'm thinking Leonard Cohen, Asheville, Thomas Wolfe. Yeah. When I was working with Leonard Cohen, I, I had the opportunity to work with him, which was amazing because again, growing up in Toronto, I love Leonard Cohen growing up. I remember like bringing his book of poetry or, or his, his record to uh, to summer camp and listening to it and trying to pick up girls by loving Leonard Cohen. And he, he was the best. And so years later, I was at AEG and somebody said, do you know Leonard Cohen? And he wants to do some gigs. And so uh, I put up my hand, I got in there, I hooked up with his lawyer and got to work with Leonard. He had no agent. So I got to like go and book all the gigs for him, work directly with his lawyer, work directly with Leonard, help put the band together. I had a great time. Uh, Rob Hallett was the man who went to Leonard and got him to work again. And then I was like there putting it all together for North America. So one place that I heard about was uh, Asheville, North Carolina and uh, the Thomas Wolfe Theater. And Thomas Wolfe is like one of my favorite authors of all time. So getting to go to do the show at the Thomas Wolfe Theater in Asheville and Leonard Cohen there. And it turned out to be like the best gig ever because it was like this, it's a beautiful theater, all wooden, these long benches, guys from, uh, some people from Ben Horses lived there. They came down to the gig. Just like the woman who ran the place, uh, her name's Marsha, like the sweetest woman ever. And ever since the Leonard gig, I'd done a bunch of my tours, always going back to Asheville. And Asheville just turned into like this just beautiful little place in the South where everybody was just so hip and really loved going there. It's funny, the connections between literary and music. William Faulkner coming from Oxford, Mississippi. I remember going to see Matt Hickey who ran a club there one time. And then afterwards we uh, broke into uh, William Faulkner's house. It was closed. We tried to get in the house. We jumped over the fence. William Saroyan, the great Armenian uh, novelist, is from Fresno, California. And there's a theater there, the William Saroyan Theater, with his typewriter in the lobby. And speaking of 92 Nails, when they first came back on their first tour after being away for such a long time, Geiger let me do 92 Nails at this little tiny theater in Fresno, California, the William Saroyan. Again, just I love going to these places and seeing where the guy came from in the history of literature. And again, put it together with rock. It's the best ever. Especially that room in Fresno, because the William Saroyan looks like it was built in 1954 and hasn't been updated since. Oh, yeah. I got to do many gigs in Fresno. And when I first went to L.A. 16 years ago, when I was in Toronto, I would do gigs in Hamilton and London and all these places around. And they were always like really great to go to. And I just thought Fresno, it's a couple of hours, four hours from L.A. It's got to be great, a bedroom community. What can go wrong? And I would do all these shows there. I did like Yellow Card and so many great shows. And everybody said to me, why are you going to this place? And it was just because they were all jaded. And you know, now I, I don't really go there that often. But at the time, I would just drive to Fresno, four hours there. And then after the gig was over at one o'clock in the morning, drive back home four hours. And I'd stop off at the gas station. My son was just growing up. He was like four years old. And I would pick up a little toy from the gas station, one of those little cars and uh, bring it home to him. I just had this feeling. I just, I just loved being on the road and you were really happy after being at a great gig and just drive and listen to music. Great feeling. Fresno, but Elliot says Fres yes. Fres yes. 
So early days, a lot of bands actually crashed at your pad, including Henry Rollins. Is that true? Oh, yeah. I had a little place on, uh, it was like a mini one bedroom in Toronto, downtown Toronto. There was a room and you had a sliding door and there was a little living room. Rollins used to stay there all the time and he would sleep on the floor. And then eventually I had like a, I had like a fold-out couch. I said, Henry, do you want to sleep on the fold-out couch? He goes, no, nah, it's cool. <laughs> the floor is good enough. I remember one time, Dr. John, the night tripper, Mac Rebinac, stayed at my place. He slept in the couch with his girlfriend. And the next morning, we went out for breakfast and we went to this place and he said to the waitress, I have a big plate of grits. And she looked at him and she, she, she didn't know what he was talking about because they don't have grits in Canada. And then I remember he, I said, hey, Mac, can you uh, do the, my answering machine? Because uh, you'll reach 925-0653 when you hear the sound on your eardrum. <laughs> He was like the sweetest guy. He was like so good. I remember doing, it was uh, Dr. John and Jeff Healy was just starting off at the time. And I knew his bass player because he was in this band. When I first started on, I wanted to be a manager and I was managing this band, this uh, Genesis, Peter Gabriel uh, type progressive rock band. And this guy, Joe, uh, he was the bass player. So he became the bass player for Jeff Healy. He was calling me, said, I got this guitar player. He's amazing. You got to check it out. And when I had this um, gig with Dr. John, I said, okay, this is your opportunity to get down here. And during rehearsals, I said, Mac, this is Jeff Healy. The guy's amazing. And Jeff started playing and Mac goes, oh my God, the guy's great. And so the two guys would play during the show together and they became really good friends. It was, it was really, really great. It was so much fun. That's amazing. So you were always the little guy, the independent, hung out with the bands, let them into your house, lost the ax to the bigger guys. And then at some point you joined the bigger guys. How'd that come about? I was competing, but it was always competing against Arthur and, and all these people. And it never really worked out. And I kept trying. I was hoping they would hire me. And they never did. One day, I got a call from John Brannigan and said that uh, Jay Marciano was coming to Canada with MCA concerts. And he's going to open up an office and he wanted to hire somebody to book alternative music. And he recommended me. So I called Jay. I went in for an interview and I got the gig. We started booking like crazy gigs. I was booking like 100 shows a year, 200 shows a year, kinds of like little club things. And Jay was booking some uh, tours across Canada with like Brian Adams and Robert Plant. And we had a little tiny office in this uh, really cool building. And Jay and I would hang out and he didn't know anybody in Canada. So I, uh, my girlfriend and I and Jay and his wife, we'd go to see movies and we just had the best time. And it was just like for the first time I had a little bit of money to play with and I could go and do what I wanted. And it was really good. I should also say, though, that with Arthur, I don't know why he didn't want to hire me. And maybe it was just a kind of a competition sort of thing. But years later, he had that movie, Who the Fuck is Arthur? And I was in Toronto and there was the Toronto Film Festival and they were doing a screening of his film. So I thought, great, I'm going to go check it out. And I went there. As I was coming in or I was leaving, Arthur was by the door and I, I saw him. So I went over and said, hey, you know, excited about seeing your movie. And he saw me and he said, what's going on? I said, well, I just want to check out. And he goes, that's so nice. You came to see my movie. And it was, I really appreciate that. And then after that, the ice was totally broken. And I remember going back to LA a little while ago after that. And he called me up and said, uh, we've got to have lunch. Took me in for lunch, this nice place in Beverly Hills. And we just talked for the longest time. And really, I, I, saw, I, I told him how much I respected what he did and his company and, and his growth. And, and he said the same thing to me. And he really said, I, I appreciate what you, you've done over the years. And we've been really good ever since that time, too. So history sort of changed after that. It, was, it felt really good. I was, Did you get to ask him why he didn't fucking hire you? You know, it was just like, it didn't really matter at that point. 
and it was water under the bridge. And, and I kind of liked the way things worked out for myself. Like it, I would have gone to work for his company or Live Nation or whatever. And I was, I, I found my own way and I'm really happy with the, the people that I, I work with over the years. And you, you meet a lot of people and people change uniforms and they're on one side or on the other side. But I, I've always been happy with the people I work for. Like Jay's always treated me really, really good. He's, he's a great guy. He's really friendly. His store's always open. He's always giving me good advice. He listens to me. He's been a good person to work for and, uh, and all the people that he's worked for over the years. He's kind of come and gone in my life, but uh, the people that he's turned me on to, I've always enjoyed working for. Okay, so MCA Concerts turns into Universal Concerts, then turns into House of Blues Concerts, and at some point gets brought into Live Nation. So full circle, Jay goes from your part of the world at MCA through all the transitions and winds up leaving and goes to AEG. At what point did you leave House of Blues and go to Golden Voice AEG? So at the time, there was Paul Tillette uh, was running Golden Voice and his partner was Rick Van Satten. And Rick was uh, a guy that I, I really loved a lot. Just a really funny, funny guy, loved music and uh, loved life. He and I were friends. And when he'd come up to Canada, he loved like motorsports. And so he'd come to Canada and he'd call me up and we'd hang out. We'd go eat some food, run around, have some fun together. And then when I'd go down to LA, we would do the same thing. We'd, we'd go see like a hockey game and smoke joints in the top of the forum, wherever it was. And he'd take me on for some big food. And he loved listening to like R&B. And, and uh, he, he had the biggest heart. He was the sweetest, sweetest guy. So I, I was really good friends with him. And then him and Paul... They were Golden Voice, but then they became part of AEG and they were doing these shows, like these tours with like uh, Limp Bizkit, some other bands. And they came to Toronto to do this one giant show. And I was so jealous that they were getting to do these giant shows. I felt like I'd been in Toronto. I'd kind of done everything that, that I could. And I, I wanted to go to LA. I wanted to go join Golden Voice. And I was writing letters to, to Jay and to Rick. And I just, I really wanted to go. And I, unfortunately, I never heard back from them. And then one day... Uh, Unfortunately, Rick died and it was around the time of Polestar. So I was going on to Polestar anyway. So I was going to go to his funeral. And then I got off the plane and I got a message from Paul Tillette and he said, can you come over? And I knew Paul, I didn't know him that well. And we started talking and he was talking about Rick and some other stuff. And I just thought like, he just wants to talk to a friend of Rick's and unburden and talk about his friend and relive some of the memories and the good times. And so we were, I sat there listening for a couple of hours. We're talking and then all of a sudden like then Jay pops into the room for like a back door and said, so, so great. So you're coming to work for us. And I look at him, I look at Paul and I said, what, what do you mean? Like, and Jay said to Paul, like, you didn't tell him. And then they said, yeah, we, we were going to give you a gig. You can come down to LA. And it was so exciting. And I went home and I brought one of the toys. My son was uh, two years old and my wife and I, I brought the toys home like you do. And I said, here's the toys. And oh, and by the way, I, I got this gig. I'd like to move to California. And that's where it all started. On the opposite side of the board again. Let's get you to tell us another story. How about uh, Radiohead at ACC? So Radiohead, I started working with them like when they first started. When I was uh, first at MCA concerts, there was this place before the Budweiser stage of the Molson Amphitheater was called Ontario Place. And it was this place that held like, I don't know, 7,000 people. And it was in the round and the stage would move around. So kind of corny. It was like a lot of like old rock and roll acts would play there. But I, I tried to bring in some cool acts. So it was the first Radiohead gig. And I did some sort of Edge Fest type festival. And it was them and a few other bands. And they went on early. And Tom was on the stage. And somehow 
he hurt himself. He, the mic hit his head or something and he was bleeding. Did the gig, but it was they were first starting out. And the, I worked with them then and I did a few other gigs with them. Then didn't work with them for the longest time. Later on, I got a call from Carol Kinsel, the agent, and said, got some Radiohead gigs coming up. Uh, would you like to do it in Toronto? This is the first time that Radiohead had played Toronto since the unfortunate situation when uh, one of the technicians had died because the stage uh, fell on him and the first time back in in Toronto and I had the honor of doing the gig and really really special night and fans came out and at one point during the show Tom asked for like a, a moment of silence for his friend and just a lot of great feelings. And then when the show was over, the technician had, he loved drinking beer and eating pizza. So they went and they had this fridge full of beer and, and all this pizza. And we all sat around some of the band members and the crew and, and the people from the building. And we just, we all ate pizza and drank beer and said, just tried to remember their technician and just tried to remember the good times. And it was a lot of feeling that night. And uh, he just kind of thought like, you know, Radiohead's the biggest band in the world. And they're just, the, they're very, very special people too. And it's funny with like the bands like Radiohead and Tool and, you know, the, the great, great bands, they, they make it so easy for you too. It's sometimes it's harder working with like the little tiny bands in a club where you're running around trying to do everything. These guys, like they take care of everything and they just like, it's so quiet backstage and just so professional. It is kind of interesting how much harder to see a club or ballroom show sometimes when you're putting all the pieces together and trying to make it all work and fit it in on a budget. And then you get these huge 18 truck shows that roll in and out so seamlessly and it is so quiet and mellow and they just got it dialed. It just, it's amazing how different sometimes, how much easier the big shows are than the little shows. Yeah. And you're also, you're working with skilled people on the big level, like the production people that you're working with and the band's production people and the, the band security people. They're just like, uh, it's such a well-oiled machine. Elliot, let's talk about how you moved into tours. I mean, you've worked with Leonard Cohen, Nick Cave, Kraftwerk, Cigarose, Father John Misty, uh, MGMT, Milk Carton Kids. It was a pretty hefty list of some pretty cool acts that aren't just selling you one date at a time, but selling you full legs of tours. How do you jump from doing regional things to doing full tours? How did that come about for you? When I was in Toronto and I was trying to do some bigger things, like I remember calling up John Silva, Don Muller and saying, okay, I want to do the, the Beastie Boys tour. And I remember I was calling her some, a payphone somewhere and it was just like, this is never going to happen. It's just like, I'm one guy in a city doing my one thing. And as good as I was, I was only like small fish. Then suddenly like with AEG, things got a little different because I saw like what John Necklin was doing and Paul Gongwear doing like these large tours, you know, maybe not the Rolling Stones. They worked with the Rolling Stones later on, but they're working with really big bands. And then when I got the opportunity to work with Leonard Cohen, all of a sudden I learned about everything. Like I learned like where you go, what's the good theater to go to? What's the good city to go to? What's the right ticket price? How do you do a tour? And I, I did it all in my own way. It was, uh, I didn't have any rooting sheets or whatever. I was work with my assistant and we would do it in a kind of fun way, but I learned about it really, really fast and then how to do it. And, and I did like three or four tours of Leonard Cohen and, and it went well each time. And then after that, the second one was like, I was at Coachella one time and I met uh, Nick Cave's managers. They talked to me about trying to work with, with uh, Nick Cave. And, and I said, no problem. Like I got all these buildings, all these places where Leonard played, that's where Nick can play. And so I got in there and started doing the tours with Nick and it started to go really well. Like once he got into the theaters and his audience got to the theaters, it worked so well because it's just the sound was good and looked really good. You could charge a higher ticket price. He started earning more money. So it became a, a great relationship working with them and, and with Nick. And then 
Craftwork was a really special one for me because I saw Craftwork and they were only doing like a few gigs in North America. And I thought like, you should be playing way more places. And so I, I had a gig in Toronto and I got this guy, he did this poster. It was an amazing poster. It was a 3D poster. If you moved the poster one way, it looked like one thing. If you moved another way, it was a different, it came out differently. So I, um, I went to Craftwork and the manager was there, Skumek Sabatka from Germany. And I showed him this poster and I told him who I was. And he said, okay, we love this. This is amazing. And, and I said, well, I think we should do more gigs with this band. He says, well, come with me. And he introduced me to uh, Ralph, the leader of Craftwork, showed him the poster. And he says, we love this. This is great. Like, let's do it. And let's go to all these different places. And I booked them into Canada in like Alberta. And they, they loved it because they knew about skiers from Canada because they they'd go skiing in Austria. And then I took them to Nashville because I just thought it'd be so cool to play the Ryman. And they said, we love it. We love Hank Williams. We love the history of where, where music started in America. So they love that gig. And they just like, they love playing gigs. They like being on the road. They're having such a great time. They wanted more of that. In fact, after the gig in Nashville went so well that when they did the next tour, they wanted to play Memphis. So I booked them into Memphis and then actually had to cancel the gig because only 200 people bought tickets. And it just, they weren't that well known in, in Memphis. So it was like, we bit the apple a little too hard the second time, but it was like just so much fun. And I just, after that, it was like, I got to the point where just dream big and go after things that you really want to go after and become part of the team, become part of the management. You're not just like this one guy doing one little gig anymore. And you got to like be part of what's going on and use my thinking in terms of bigger way. And I had friends like the manager of MGMT, Mark Cates. Everybody knows him. He's, he's a wonderful guy. And I kept after him. And one day he just said, okay, let's go, let's do it. This is such a good band. And it was just, I got to the right time because they made this record that was a, a little more commercial and the tour was great. People loved it. And now I'm trying to do some more things with them. And it's like the world has caught up to MGMT. And same thing with Misty. Like Misty's one of the great artists out there. And then the funny thing with Sigur Rost was what happened there was I worked with Kraftwerk and Skumek, the, the manager from Germany, is also a promoter in Germany. He had promoted Sigaros in Germany. And he went to the manager of Sigaros and said, I'm working with this guy in North America and he's doing a great job for me. The money's good, a lot of attention, really takes care of the band. You should work with him. So uh, I got this call one day from Marty Diamond and said, Sigaros wants to talk to you. I knew Sigaros were, never worked with them before. As soon as I heard that, I just, I called up the manager, I introduced myself and he had heard of me through the German promoter and we started talking and I asked him to give me the chance and then we did it and man, they were such a great band. And the last time I did this tour with them with a symphony orchestra and a choir, it was like so hard to put together, but I did it. And now we're continuing to do things. And I think the best thing about all of this is that I get to keep working with these artists. Like they come back, like when they cave, I've done like three or four tours or Crawford, a couple, two or three tours. So you get to work with them, then you get to work with them again because you get really close to them. And I, I just, I put so much passion into it, but I love it. Ellie, I gotta ask you, you got great stories. An amazing history. As you were the little guy that always had the band taken away from you after he developed it, do you feel a little weird about being a tour promoter with bands like Cigarose that you had never done and now you're doing everywhere and the local guy that built them lost the act? Well, I work with some people that have worked with the bands before. So 
it's not in every city, but I, I, I know that there are people out there who, who care about the bands. And a lot of times I reach out to some local promoters to work with them. And I think that there's, there's people out there that, that I do that with. And so maybe it's not with everybody, but there's enough local people out there that I, I use their help. And we have a lot of good times working together on it. It's probably not everybody. And maybe some feelings have been hurt along the way. A lot of times I do get to work with people. I also feel like this is the band's choice too. So if they come to me and they say like, oh, there's some guy that we really love out there and we really want to work with him again, then I say, great, let's do that. But a lot of times they, they, they don't say that. And I, I just, and I try to give a little bit extra too. And they, they appreciate that. All right, so you're sensitive to it. Yeah, absolutely. There's a story. There's this guy in Milwaukee and he sent me a letter. His name's Peter Jess. He sent me a letter. He wanted to work with Leonard Cohen. And I kept saying like, it's Milwaukee. You can't really get to it. He's got to play all these major cities, other cities, but let's keep it in mind. And then it got to the point where Leonard had already played all these cities and he was looking to play some other places he hadn't played before. And I said, okay, I got this place, Milwaukee. You got to go there. And uh, there's this guy, Peter Jess, who really loves you. So I called up Peter and we did the gig. It turned out great. And then I worked with Peter on some other things too. Same thing with like Seth in Washington. We always have a great time. We always work together on shows. And then and uh, he's become such good friends that we go on and he orders like all the food, all the second like diner, you know, orders the left side of the menu and I can't keep up with them, but we have a great time. And uh, yeah, there's, and there's like different places too. Like there's this little synagogue in Brooklyn that I'd heard about and I did a gig there and places in Austin where I can work at. So I try to, it's not just the promoters, but a lot of these like little tiny venues I try to get to and, and save them and um, try to uh, get some of these artists to play these different places. Elliot, we have been all over the map. I'm going to ask you for one more story. And I think I'm saving the best for last because you got to work with John Lee Hooker. And how cool is that? Tell me that story. You know, I love blues and I got to work with many blues artists over the years, uh, Coco Taylor and a little Ed. And there was like some really good guys who represented the blues, like Ron Kaplan started off in Chicago representing a lot of these artists and Jody Wenig uh, working with B.B. King and uh, some of those artists and Patti LaBelle. And so I got to work with a lot of these artists over the years and I, and I love the blues and obviously that's where rock and roll came from. So John Lee Hooker like never did any gigs. It was it was like MGMT thing, like no gigs, no gigs. And then one day you get the call, okay, John Lee Hooker's ready to go and wants to do a gig. And it was that same place where I mentioned about Radiohead playing, where the stage went around. And there was somebody there with the controlling the speed of it. So he could either go really slow or really fast. And so Hooker played on the show and it was going really good. And I think there was a curfew. They may have had to speed it up a little bit in order to like get him to be finished and get him back to the place where he's supposed to get off stage at the right time. So I think they may have sped it up a little too fast. And I just <laughs> I remember him, I remember him getting off stage and he was uh, said, I'm really dizzy, you know, and um, I just I walked back to his dressing room and I had a I had a poster and he signed it for me. And again, like, yeah, it's like working with the greats. And that's where what's their music all started from. And I, I remember going down to the uh, south side of Chicago once. One of the best times ever was with uh, Matt Hickey. And Matt is like this ambassador. He knew Chicago so well. And he had this cool car wearing a fedora top down. He's driving me and some of my friends. And we went down to the checkerboard lounge. And we got some barbecue. And getting to see where the blues uh, you know, came from. It was so wonderful. So uh, yeah, getting to work with John Lee Hooker was a blast. Awesome. Elliot, you've worked with so many people. Your career has spanned big acts and small acts and touring and single market dates. Do you have any advice for any of the people listening on 
how to build career longevity? Well, I've worked a lot of shows with uh, your partner, Jason Sink. And, you know, alongside you, like you guys work together for such a long time and uh, you really, you really care about the acts. I just, I remember like seeing Jason at a show. He just does everything for the act. He's running around, he's getting the towels, he's getting the food, he's making sure the advertising is correct. It's like, he won't stop until everything is like perfect for the act. And they say like, the act is the boss. You got to take care of the act. It's not about you. It's it's all about the act, making sure the act is happy. And that's where it all starts from and, and the way Jason takes care of it. And I think that's what I try to do is like, make sure that uh, you take care of these people. You make sure that everybody knows the show is happening, that you do all your advertising as best as possible and that you'd be really creative. And I remember like in the old days, you'd go down to the radio station and you say, can you play the Beastie Boys or can you play the Lemonheads? And then can you play Dinosaur Junior? I remember like buying a little dinosaur and going to the radio station guy and saying, here's the little dinosaur, play Dinosaur Junior. Or like just saying like, you got to make it personal and, and get your personality in there so that people, they care about it as much as you do. And that's what it's all about. Like doing all the, the little extra work. And I think that it's also too about like making sure the audience is happy and really taking care of the audience too. And when I did festivals, I'd be running around and say like, don't make people stand in line and in long lines to get through the gates, like get some extra security up there, get people through the gates faster, make sure that like uh, the, the, there's enough people to serve beer so that they don't have to stand in lines again. But it's just sort of like making sure that everybody is, is happy, having a good time and, and taking care of all these people. And I think like, if you put all of that into it, no matter if it's for like 10 people or 10,000 people, that it's all going to come back to you. Elliot, I can't thank you enough for making time and talking to us. Man, were the stories good. The great Elliot Lefko from Golden Voice Concerts in Los Angeles slash Toronto joining us right here on Promoter 101. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Love, love, love Elliot Lefko. Thrilled that he finally joined us here on Promoter 101. Hello there, Andy Summers from APA and Promoter 101. Happy to be here. All right, y'all. Episode 217 of Promoter 101 in the bag. Thank you so much for tuning in every week that you're here. We really appreciate you. Thanks to all of our wonderful guests today. Live Nation's Jimmy Koplick. Golden Voices, Elliot Lefko. Thank you both for being on the podcast. If you all liked what you heard today, send us a note. We're at SteinyPromoter101.net. We miss you. We just want to catch up. That's all for this week's Promoter 101, but we'll be back soon. And we've got more special treats just for you. And in the meantime, we're wishing you that shows come back as soon and as safely as possible. Cheers. Call your mother. I'm Lucy Dickens from ITB, and I'm on Promoter 101. Ba-da-ba-ba, ba da ba